Hey, hey guys, welcome to the Midtown Pastor Podcast. And uh, today we have grown. We have added another to our number. And it's a guy that we all know very well, even if you may not. But uh, let me welcome Jonathan Nash. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, hello. This is your first time to the podcast, isn't it? It is. This is my first time on any podcast. Welcome to the unusual fellowship of weird and strange pastors. Mm -hmm. So, hey, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about what you do. I've been on uh, Midtown staff since 2014. feels like quite a while now. went to seminary while on staff alongside Elliot for a number of years. And then in the last three years, I guess, my family has lived in the Napier area of South Nashville off of Lafayette Avenue, Murfreesboro Pike. Trebek University area. And we have felt called through Midtown and you know with my family to this community to do urban ministry and, and now church planting. So that came about kind of toward the end of my time with at Midtown with seminary and thinking about where the Lord was leading Midtown next and and its ministry cycle and where you know I was feeling called particularly. So we moved into that neighborhood and have been doing urban ministry, a lot of it through urban farming. If you've heard a rumor about what has been happening down there, that's probably the, the rumor you've heard is growing food for a, a food desert. And that's certainly the community, the reality of the community I live in. Everybody shops at Dollar General and gas stations. And that's where all the food comes from because most people are not mobile or able to get to a grocery store and there's nothing close. And so food development and bringing some relief to a really broken food system has been a pathway or a bridge for us to get to know people and engage and meet people in the place of their needs, but all for the purpose of the the same goal we have in all of our Midtown communities, which is that people are transformed by Jesus and the gospel. So as that's developed in the last, you know, probably year, we've just really felt a renewed call to church planting I wouldn't even say in that neighborhood because it makes it sound like it's from the outside in, but church planting from within that neighborhood and gathering a team of people that are our neighbors. And so that's what we've been pursuing recently is we've gathered a team of mostly residents from the community and been asking the question, what is the right kind of church for this community? And I've been laboring you know, to make that more of a tangible thing in the last six months or so. Man, it's great to have you with us, Jonathan, because you really are are a part of us, that Midtown is a church planning movement, creating a movement of gospel transformation through multiple congregations, and not just for certain parts of the city, but we'd like to see it for all of the city. So it's awesome to have you guys in Napier and continue to pray for a church plant, but you're also one of our preaching pastors. So most of our folks have probably seen you preach. You've preached at all our congregations. In fact, the passage that we're going to talk about today, you preached on video, like you're on TV, bro. You are a star. Is it was it world broadcast or just nationwide? No, it's gone worldwide. Close it's circuit. the worldwide Close <laughs> circuit TV. <laughs> so would you take us into the passage, man? Would you read for us from this is Luke nineteen, right? Yeah. Yeah. So this just contextually, this picks up the very next verse after our passage that we looked at last week in the story of Zacchaeus. So this is Luke nineteen, starting in verse eleven, where Jesus tells another parable. So verse 11 of Luke 19, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. 
But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. And the first came to him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. So he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Well, why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. It's the word of the Lord. So I know that this story is about a lot more than not keeping money in a handkerchief. Before we dive into that, I need to ask all you guys, do any of you guys have handkerchiefs? No, but I do have some meanness. You do? <laughs> Brent, please tell me you have a hanky. Do you I'm, own a hanky? I'm a little bit offended that you would think I'm the person who's going to have a hanky. No hankies, <laughs> no pocket squares, none of that. None. none. Of that silliness. Do you have one on you right now? <laughs> <laughs> no, but... Dave is actually wiping his nose right now I've with a handkerchief. I've been tying one around my face for the last you know, handful of weeks. Jonathan, can you give us an overview of what's happening here in this parable? Yeah, like all of Jesus' parables, he's telling a story for a reason, which is obvious. But I think what's usually missed is that he's not necessarily telling us parable the same way we think. Because um, I think a lot of us, you know, I'm reading my kids some of Aesop's fables right now during this quarantine. It's been one of the books we've read. And a fable has a moral. They literally end with, you know, uh, the tortoise and the hare, the moral is slow and steady wins the race. And so we, we love to read Jesus' parables. We want to know, like, what's the slow and steady wins the race? Like, Jesus, what's the, the little nugget you want me to take away that now my life is just going to be so much better? And what we find, and especially I think this parable, maybe more than any of them, completely throws that out the window because we realize, A, there's a lot more that Jesus is telling us than just a nice little nugget of truth. But it's actually, he's not as much interested in, now what do I need to go and do? Or, and now what do I, how do I go live, you know, in this religion of Christianity, which is typically what we assume, but it's more so, let me tell you about myself, number one, and this kingdom I'm bringing. And in so doing, I'm going to paint for you a picture of this place you're supposed to live in and how you live there. So there's obviously a, a moral or a behavioral implication, but that's only an implication. What he's doing is painting us a picture of, of what's true. And so I think we really see that in this parable because you know, the, the purpose of the parable is to describe the kingdom of God. That's what the very first verse says, that Jesus is on his way now to Jerusalem after leaving Jericho and the story of Zacchaeus that we know now. And, and it says, because the people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately, dot, 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 he said, well, I'm going to tell you a story. And so the, the point of this parable is to explain that this kingdom that exists, that he's the king of, is going to come in a whole new way. He's a king now, so his kingdom is here, but it's also a kingdom that's going to come, and it's not going to come right away. There's a waiting that we're called to as those that are 
servants of his kingdom now that we wait for our, our master and our king to return. And so he, Jesus, is the character of, of the Lord and the master who's going to receive his kingdom and, and bring it back. So that's the context. I love that Jesus is being kind and talking to us about waiting because waiting is such a difficult process. It's something that often creates a lot of pain too, right? It makes me think of the marshmallow experiment. Have you guys ever seen these videos where they put a marshmallow in front of a child and they say, if you cannot eat this marshmallow for two minutes, I'll give you a second marshmallow when I come back. And then the parent or the professor leaves the room and they just put a video camera on the child sitting on their hands or getting up and walking around the room or singing themselves songs because this idea of waiting for something that we want is just so hard. Right. (laughs) Did they conclude that the kids who could wait, they followed them later in life? And what did they discover there? It's like one of the best researched and confirmed sociological studies, but those kids are way more successful in life if they're able to wait for the second marshmallow. Waiting is important and has a huge impact on our lives. And we were seeing a picture here where Jesus is displaying some kingdom truths in this parable about waiting. And one of the things that he's illustrating is that while we wait, something's been given to us. Right. And what's been given to us in this story, it's Mina. But in the life of believers in the kingdom of Jesus, talk to me about what he's been given us. What What do we have? Well, and, and just for context, Amina for this time, that this was a particular unit of money. So it would have been like a, I don't know if it was about a month's wages, I've, I've heard. So it's a decent chunk of change, but it's not a massive amount of money. And so I completely agree that we're offered a chance to say, okay, what have I been given? You know, I've not been given the same chunk of money necessarily that this parable is talking about, but what are the gifts, the tangible and intangible things that as I'm waiting on this kingdom to come back, my king has entrusted me with to do work with. I think biblically speaking, Randy, there are certain macro categories that answer your question. A, we've all been given gifts by the Holy Spirit. We've been empowered with not just the way that we're wired, but our the things that we're good at and the things that the Lord has said, hey, I'm going to, here's your mina of intangible giftings, uh, whether that's shrewd in business or public speaking or organization or leadership or servanthood or, you know, there's lots of different gifts that the Lord gives out as means. He also has given the gift of the means of grace, the ways that we are able to encounter Jesus. That's a gift, the gift of his word, the gift of Mm -hmm. prayer, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift of the church. We've been given treasures. We've been given the gift of all of Jesus's recorded teachings. That's a gift we've been given to steward and to use and to interact with while we wait. And so there's certainly like gifts that we've been given to use for the kingdom. There's also been gifts that are like for us in the kingdom. Yeah, I've been thinking about just in categories, the terms of we have tangible gifts, we have money, we have resources, we have stock, we have property. I mean, you know, literally we have physical things that it's all the Lord's, it's all the King's, but he's been, he's entrusted them to us. But then we have intangible gifts, which my talent, my passion is such a gift. If you are passionate about something, it's a gift you've been given to then run, right? It gives you the, it's the, it's the fire behind you to make you race to attain the thing you're passionate about. So those are intangible things. And then just like Elliot said, yeah, that we have been given spiritual riches. We have the Holy Spirit. I'd love for you, Dave, to kind of dive a little deeper into what Jonathan just said, is that our passions are a gift from the Lord and why that's hard for a lot of people that spend their life 
actually not believing that maybe the greatest gift they give to the Lord is walking away from their passions rather than walking into their passions. Yeah, you know, in the beginning of the story here, he says that he gave he gave each of them a mina. And I know for me that a lot of life has been built on comparing what I've been given to what other people have been given. And even at times wanting and believing that the gifts that I've been given are somehow less than or maybe in some ways somehow more than what someone else has. I've, I've been told both things like, man, I wish I, I was gifted the way you are or, and or I felt, man, I wish I was gifted the way so-and-so was. And I think one of the pictures here is, is the idea that the master is giving in this equal Mina. He's saying that all of these gifts have value. Uh, I mean, if you look into the, even into the Paul's kind of description of the body in the new Testament and how he talks about the gifts that he's given to the church, that all of them are profoundly valuable and necessary for the health of the entire body. And we can't do without any of them. But I think in a culture and in a society that tends to celebrate certain gifts and elevate those gifts and also see other gifts as as somehow less than, we actually have this kind of hierarchy of gifts that really has nothing to do with what the master values and how he sees what he's given us, but how culture or society sees what he's given us. I know even as a kid, I grew up thinking that at least the expression of gifts was God has given me these gifts to set myself apart from other people. Like that's what you use your gifts for is to shine and not to glorify the master or to grow the master's kingdom, but to grow your kingdom. Mm. And so what that, you know, oftentimes has us focusing on is our gifts in the wrong way, which is, is what what has he given me? How am I going to leverage that to grow my kingdom, my stock uh, in the eyes of others or whatever I, I value, rather than, no, he's, he's given me this to serve and to shine on him. And so, you know, when Jonathan says, God's given you these passions and those passions are a gift from him, Oftentimes what we do is we take that passion that's there, that's real. Like uh, I can't tell you how many people who are good at one thing, but they don't feel like because culture has said that's not enough. They actually try to take what they're really great at and they try to go beyond that. And they move themselves. It's almost like taking someone who's great at sales and moving them into a manager position. It's like you were a great salesman because that's who you are. They try to get and become something that they aren't because of a message that's attached that keeps them from really embracing this is who God has gifted you and called you and made you to be. And it's hard sometimes to trust that and to really know (laughs) in your own heart from a conviction standpoint. And also I think it's a part of what we have to do as a community is we have to get a lot better at celebrating all the gifts rather than elevating some of the gifts. It would be easy to read this parable and conclude that if uh, if I'm not successful, then I must not be using my gifts. Is that what this parable is talking about? Mm. I think we can't miss the fact that this is such an important discussion to have just being in the city that we're in. I mean, a city that's in many ways built on an entertainment industry is one that says, I will paint a picture of what success looks like. You see it on a screen and it looks like something produced 
for a camera. And that actually is, that's the the measure. And so if you're not living up to that, if you're, you know, I, I'm not a musician, so I'm not even going to try to get in the head of someone that's pursuing that passion. But I can just imagine that there are definitely economically, there are ways that that passion could get twisted to say like success and value in that world is going to look like a very particular thing. And we're going to paint that picture for you and and you're going to feel like getting that is the answer to you feeling fulfilled. And we don't even necessarily have to imagine ourselves into a musician's mind. We've all been given gifts in this room and we've been called to a profession that we've got our own idea of what success in using our gifts for success and being successful with our gifts, what that looks like. And so I can speak personally how often I come up against not even necessarily the shame of am I using my gifts in the most successful way, but maybe even asking how come I don't feel the way I want to feel about the quote unquote success of the gifts that I've been given. And What is that supposed to mean? What is that supposed to look like? And Jesus in this parable never in any way, shape, or form lets the servants play the comparison game. He celebrates faithful work with their gifts, not successful work with their gifts. And there are some gifts that how would you even measure the success of them? Right? Like if you're gifted in your hospitality, what does being successful at being hospitable even look like? Right? That if the only paradigm that we have for understanding what it means to be gifted is that it's something that I can be successful in, we've already lost our way in understanding what a gift is. And I, I think it's important to say, too, that there are some people who that, that's true also about the idea of being passionate about something. And I'm thinking about people that I know and, and care about who, who have said, I don't know what I'm passionate about. And it's because their idea of what passion is, is a very narrow definition of passion. It's the kind of passion that drives a musician to do music or that drives an entrepreneur to take all kinds of risks. And it's possible to be passionate about something in a way that doesn't always sound like or or maybe feel like we expect that passion to sound like. And there are also people who may not even know, yeah, may not know what those things are. And and I think it's, it's important to say that starting with what you do know and what you have been called to and with what you know you do have, Hmm. that giving and being generous with spending, leveraging those things for the kingdom right where you are is enough. So I want to come back to this idea of success in just a minute, but now that we're on passion, take me to the other extreme too, because if I have a passion for something, is that God's gift for me? If I have a passion to be a professional basketball player, uh, is that what I should pursue? Why are you looking at me, Randy? Yeah. That? <laughs> I'm a short man. Yeah. and you someone who's experiences shortness. So talk to me about... What's the difference between acknowledging that I have a passion about something and acknowledging that God's given me a gift that he's also given me a passion for? Yeah, I think passion is certainly something like we talked about on last week's podcast to maybe be curious about and ask some questions about, but it may not have the conclusion that you are imagining with it. For instance, I am passionate about basketball and I do love the NBA. That passion doesn't necessarily mean I was meant to be a professional basketball player that passion can actually lead me to enjoy it in ways. That passion can lead me to, to be interested in it, to find friends in that and share community around it and share experiences with it. But passion doesn't necessarily equal gifts and calling. Passion maybe is just a way to be curious about what does this passion mean for me? And maybe you are gifted in the things you're passionate about, but maybe you're not. 
You know, I think that's so important. We're not going to spend a lot of time talking about this, but we need community because community keeps bringing us back to sanity. Because I have a tendency to run to insanity with my passions in two directions. One, I tend to run away from the very thing that God's calling me to because of shame and a lack of confidence and not wanting to believe that the thing I love is actually the thing the Lord wants me to do. And I need community to cheer me on and encourage me on and tell me, no, this is the road you should travel. But I also need community to draw me back from my fantasies to where I'm running to places I might have a passion for, but I have no gifts for. So we need community in this. And we could talk about that for hours, but I want to get back to this idea of success and ask you guys a simple question. If Jesus is changing my understanding of success, can I still want to be successful in the things that I do? If I'm a businessman and I'm really good at managing money, is it okay for me to want to be crazy successful about that? Or if I'm a mom at home and I love I love being with my kids and I love just nurturing them and growing them, is it okay for her to want to be successful in doing that endeavor? Or if I sell real estate, is it okay to really want to be crazy successful in the world of real estate? I think that's so good, Randy. I think that question and then the question about how do I know if my passion, like how far should I take it? Like when, when am I the, the American Idol? You know, what, what are they first get on William auditioning? Hung. Yeah, yeah, there you go, William Hung. When do I know if I'm the, the William Hung who needs to hang up the microphone? I think both of these questions, is it okay to be successful and how do I know how far to take my passion? This is where this parable, it might not tell me exactly what I'm supposed to do in the way that Aesop Fable does, but what it's telling me about the gifts that the king has given me is that they're his. And I think the fact that all these gifts are the king's answers all these questions for us. Yeah, talk about it, brother. That we're discussing because to take the passion thing, for example, if the gift of singing or the gift of playing music or the gift of selling real estate is the king's, then I can run as hard and as fast and as intensely for success in that area and at the same time, I'm listening to the one who gave me that gift. And I'm saying, okay, what do you want for me here? How far do you want me to go? Am I able to hear that, oh, this is actually not working out, you know? Maybe this isn't getting me where I want to be. And maybe I'm still passionate about it, but I know that, okay, it's time to hang it up. When it's mine, though, then it becomes a lot more about me making my own identity and me trying to squeeze something out of that passion or that gift, squeeze some success, squeeze some feeling out of it that I was never meant to have. If I'm not giving it up to the Lord, then I won't have the ability to know when I've taken it for my own yet. I think what you're saying, Jonathan, what it's making me think is is that success always has an audience attached to it. Mm. Who defines success? So, Randy, like your question, like, can I want to be successful in real estate? Well, does that mean you make a certain amount of money? Does that mean you sold a certain amount of houses? I mean, how am I doing what I'm doing in light of how other people are doing what they're doing if they have that same gift. But what's so important about what Jonathan just said, you know, when they say, your Mina has made 10 Minas more, all of the focus of that sentence is the my view of success is really... What does the master think about? Yeah, what does the master think about this? What was his intent with giving me this gift? Yeah, you know, I think success is even a tricky word because we realize when I'm trying to answer the question of how far should I go with this, it always invites me to a lesser audience. (laughs) 
rather than the master who reigns over me, who's given me everything I have anyways. There's so much freedom there, right? I think about that in my parenting. Like, what would it be like to be able to say, I'm excited about being a good parent, and that doesn't mean I have to think that you're a crappy parent to make me feel better about my parenting, right? That, right. <laughs> that, there's so much There's so much freedom there. and Although you are a better parent than I am. <laughs> <laughs> We're only two years in, so we'll see how it goes. Uh, that's also a place that I need community because I can get so wrapped in my own head of analyzing my own motives and I need other people to be invited into, hey, help me think about how I'm thinking about being successful in my job. That's successful in waiting, isn't it? It's why waiting is so hard hmm. to view my waiting through the lens of waiting, to view my success through the lens of waiting on the king coming back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think in the whole success conversation, Jonathan, I don't know if you did this in the sermon or just in our pastoral discussion about this um, recently, but we hear this first servant turned one mean into 10, second servant turns one mean into five. We immediately go, 10's better than five. Right. First servant's better. Right. Jesus doesn't do that. He rewards them both, and he doesn't say like, well, come on, five man. why Step it up. Yeah, why wasn't it 10? <laughs> mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so what you said, Dave, about what does the master think about what I've done with what he's given me is way different than what do I think about what I've done with what he's given me. Yeah, I think about last week we talked about Zacchaeus, and before he met Jesus, his idea of success was very different than it was at the end of the story where he was going back and righting all his wrongs and giving a fourth of his money away. Is that right? Half of his money. Half of his money away. And it's crazy when we meet Jesus and we now view that he's coming back, how it changes even our definition of what success is. I think the Psalms talk about that when when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices because there is a blessing that flows out of the success of the righteous, Mm. because even the righteous see success as a way to bless. Mm. Mm. Elliot, you asked a question last week that was super helpful for me, I think, in understanding this. You asked, well, what would happen if one of the Minas didn't make money? What if it lost money? And I think kind of the answer that I heard you guys saying was that that's not in this parable, perhaps because that's not even possible. That if we're investing or leveraging what God has given us as he's called us, then the results of that are, in a sense, out of our hands. Mm-hmm. That success is the being faithful right. as opposed to the result that we get. Yeah, I think about where does Paul say in the New Testament that what we all long to hear when the king returns is, well done, good and faithful, not well done, good and successful. And that is the call of the waiters, is to be faithful. And ultimately, what you just said, Brant, proves the point even more is that because Jesus was faithful, we're all going to hear that on some levels one day where we're found in the faithful one and united to him. And so we'll hear the the king's declaration. But it is what the church does while we wait with the minas and the talents and the gifts we've been given is, is we're called to be faithful, not successful. Well, let's jump to this third servant, the hanky boy. Who uh, <laughs> yeah, he put all his money in a hanky, which none of you have. And Jonathan, kind of help us understand this and how Jesus ends this parable in some pretty stark language. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just there's so much we don't know because Jesus doesn't tell us. One of the things that I've been thinking, and this is now a pastoral thought and an insight potentially, it's that there's two characters really in this parable. There's the enemies of the king, and and I think we'll talk about them in a little bit. But other than the enemies, though, everyone else is a servant of the king. So even this third servant, I I don't think Jesus is painting a picture of someone that is utterly rejected by the king. But what Jesus is painting is that there are different kinds of servants. So even within the category of, you know, servant of Jesus or follower of Jesus, 
there's different ways that we engage with these gifts he's given us. And some of them are unfortunate. There's a way that as a believer and as a follower of Jesus, who's been given gifts, who has passion, I can be like the third servant. That's all to say that I think this character is really important for us to look at. And so kind of looking at this guy, um, you know, there's a few interesting things going on in the story. And one of which is that Luke, the author, or Jesus, you know, is the one telling the parable, but Luke brings out the detail that the guy hid this mina in a sweat cloth. So the, the translation of that word handkerchief is the word sweat and the word cloth. So this is a cloth that he should have been using to wipe the sweat from his face as he worked with the king's riches. And instead, he keeps it dry. It has none of his sweat on it, but what it has is this gift that the king gave him. We would all look at that and go, man, that's so sad. You know, why didn't this guy recognize that, sure, it was a small amount, but he could have done anything with it. Like, he had the freedom to do anything as a servant of this king, as someone who's been given borrowed riches, he can work with these borrowed riches and do whatever he wants. You know, and that's what the king brings up to him later. He says, you could at least put it in the bank. Like, we get the sense that literally if the guy had walked him and said, you know what, I wasn't sure what to do with it, but I put it in the bank and I got 0.01% interest. I still think he would have heard, well done, you know, good and faithful servant. You get and, 0.01 of a city. Right. <laughs> you know, I've often heard it said yeah. that uh, he exchanged a life of I get to for a life of I've got to. Yeah. Right. That passions now get turned into burdens mm. yeah. and freedom now becomes chains. Yeah. Mm. So the picture you get of this man is a man who is in chains. Mm. Um, I think you see that in what he did and the fear that he lived with in the way that he engaged with his gift. You get it, the fact that he's a prisoner by the way he talks about the king. You know, he says, I knew that you were a man who took the things that weren't yours. You squeezed value out of something when you put no work into it. And so I was afraid of you. And what really this betrays, I think, and this is the very unfortunate thing that I think this passage calls us all to really stop and think about is, is my view of the king, is my view of the master chaining me or um, Hmm. preventing me from running with passion and freedom in the gifts he's given me? Because that's who we see in this third servant, is this is a man or a woman, right, who was unable to run freely with the gift of his king because he believed something different about the king than, than was true. Mm. And it was that this is someone who's really out to get me. You know, he's returning, he's coming back, and he's coming back with a whip mm. in his hand. And he's just waiting for me to mess up or waiting for me to not attain the success, you know, that, that maybe I was expecting mm-hmm. of myself. Mm-hmm. There's a psalm, I forget the reference, but it says, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Yeah, 119. And that's what I, I need from Jesus is a heart that he's expanded to understand the love that he has for me so that I can run in what he's called me to with joy and eagerness. And I think that this last sentence actually helps us understand how he does that because it says, but as for these enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me, Hmm. Uh, which is so striking, but there is a truth about grace here that we've got to bring out to really underline what you just said, Brant. Can you guys tackle that for us? I think it's important, and Jonathan, you helped our people understand this, but that last line is not directed at the third servant, the third servant who was afraid and 
what'd you call him, Hanky Boy, Randy? He's not the one that gets slaughtered. It's clear in there that these are the enemies. These are the ones that hate the king. These are the subjects of the king, not the servants of the king. And they're diametrically opposed to the king and his kingdom. And so, you know, in that day, that line at the end of this parable about a king who's taking over a kingdom would not have been surprising to any of the listeners that that king slaughters his enemies. Everyone listening would have been very mm-hmm. aware that that is what kings do when they when they take thrones. And so it's shocking to us because that feels harsh and it feels abrupt and feels cruel by King Jesus to say that at the end of this parable, but it was normal for them. What's abnormal, what, what the punch would have been, what the upside-downness of this parable would have been is in the very next line, Jesus is the king in this story, and he's riding in the triumphal entry to be slaughtered. Is that the king from the parable who returns to bring his kingdom is the same king, Jesus, who is going to be slaughtered by his enemies, which is us. And so the upside downness of it is actually what fuels what Brant just said about, it's what enlarges my heart is wait, 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 I've got a king that's the complete opposite of the third servant's view. He is merciful, and he is kind, and he is sacrificial, and he is for me. And he proves it in the very next story is the kind of king that he is. And so we get to be faithful to that kind of king. Yeah, he's the king that was slaughtered for us as enemies so that we could be made his servants, so that we could wait for the king to come back and wait well with the gifts he's given. So... And he models in doing that, he models how to be the servant. And in mm. every respect, the life of Jesus was one of a sacrificing servant king. Mm. In his waiting on the Lord, in the hope that he held his standing as a son of his king. You know, you, the, the picture, the perfect picture, other than the Jesus who's riding into Jerusalem on the donkey, is the Jesus just a couple chapters later who's weeping in the garden saying, Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me, then Mm -hmm. please, but not my will, but yours be done. Mm -hmm. The perfect sacrificial servant. Yeah, It's a perfect picture of someone who is faithful and values being faithful over being successful, Mm. right? That if you were to look at Jesus's earthly ministry, even from our standards of earthly ministry, it was a pretty poor showing. You know, he loved 12 guys and they all, one of them betrayed him and the other ones scattered. And even at the ascension, it says that when Jesus returns to heaven, that they were there and some doubted. Mm-hmm. And it'd be easy to look at that and say, oh, that's, well, that's not very successful, Jesus. But Jesus had a, a much bigger picture of what, of what he was accomplishing. Mm-hmm. That as he was faithful to what the Father called him to, that that was enough. And it was what the Father then used to build and spread his kingdom. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of the things that, even going back to our earlier discussion on gifts, if you know you're actually walking in some of the gifts and the passions that the Lord has given you. Those gifts, you just talked about Gethsemane, those gifts were costly. They weren't self-elevating. They were self-emptying. And we only often think of gifts in terms of how they elevate me. And one of the great ways you can know, am I walking in what God's called me to is if it doesn't smell like Gethsemane at some point, it's probably not what he's called you to. Because if I'm called to use my gifts, it's going to crucify me. And that's what it means to be a servant. That's what it means to follow him, is to be emptied, not to be elevated. Mm. 
I think what Dave is saying, you know, the other side of that is that every one of us wants to live a full, rich life. Never met anybody that says, you know, I really want my life to be less than satisfying. And what Jesus is displaying for us here is that that a big part of this full-hearted, grace-centered, huge life that we desire to have is pouring ourselves out with the gifts God has given us and the passion he's given us to use those gifts for his kingdom. Yeah, in the, and, pla- in the place we've been placed. Yeah, and you know, and I think for a lot of our folks that are listening go, okay, how do I begin that journey? And what's shocking to me about this story is it starts with us understanding correctly about the master, that it simply starts with me understanding how much I'm loved by Jesus who would go to the cross for me, and through the power of his resurrection now pouring that love mm-hmm. into my own heart, that actually grace always starts with receiving, and always ends with receiving, and then uh, lives a life of spilling it out. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Jonathan, it's been great to have you here with us, man, and yeah, thank you. Uh, great for unpacking. Yeah, woo-woo. unpacking mm-hmm. this story for us, and we continue to pray for your ministry and for your heart and for your ministry to us. Mm-hmm. So, would you pray for us as we go out, Heavenly Father, Jesus, our King? We are those who stand here or sit here or lay on our beds here as we're listening to this wherever we are, who are waiting for your coming. Lord, we're desperate for it. Uh, If we're honest, there's not a day that goes by in our life that isn't pushing us closer to just the the deep uh, need and waiting for all this to be made new. And so we know we serve a king who's bringing a new creation kingdom here and remaking this world into the place where you want to come live with us. But Lord, we also believe... And we believe this parable has just taught us that we have a hand in that, that we have been given tools for new creation kingdom work. Um, We've been given tools of new creation. And I just pray for everyone listening, for us as pastors, for the staff of Midtown Fellowship, and for all of our people, that the journey of our life would be one of more faithfully, but also more freely gripping the gifts that you've given us and wielding those for the sake of your kingdom. And when that requires sacrifice, because it will, when that requires giving and not getting, because it will, give us the grace and the eyes to see our Jesus that knelt and, and gave up everything to attain the kingdom for himself and for us. So you, you've said you go to prepare a place for us, and when it's ready, you'll come and take us back. Um, would you find us faithful when, uh, when you do that? And it's in your precious name that we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.